Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Josh Linkner. Josh is a creative troublemaker who started his career as a jazz guitarist and then went on to become the founder and CEO of five tech companies, selling for a combined value of over $200 million. He's a world-renowned expert on innovation, disruption, and hyper-growth leadership. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks. Great to be with you. So I'm going to start off with a big question, and that is, I'm someone who's inspired by a big vision and the thought of just having continual incremental changes just makes me want to take a big old nap. So what would you say to people like me when it comes to creativity and innovation and and having this kind of focus on small breakthroughs, small changes? Well, the really quick big question is, how do you achieve the biggest vision that you could imagine? And one, yeah. one way to do that is to have this wild moonshot, high risk, swing for the fences, bet the company on it. The other way is what I believe is a more pragmatic approach, which is cultivating a high velocity of small ideas, which build upon on top, on top of each other. And when you think, and that, that's what the principle of this book, Big Little Breakthroughs is, but the idea behind it is that the most sort of lowest risk, widely accessible approach to getting the big things that we want out of life is, as the old saying goes, one bite at a, at a time, which is cultivating, again, a daily habit of small creative acts that cascade into those big things that we, we create. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on the practicality standpoint. You can't, you can't always just launch for something huge. And when I think about it in terms of how these things actually unfold, um, what you're describing is, is absolutely right. So I, this, that made me think about the whole idea of compounding when it comes to um, boosts in, in creativity and, and innovation. Can you talk a bit about compounding and what you call the 70-30 rule? Sure. So again, my, my advice for people isn't that they should, you know, have puny goals in life. It's, it's quite the opposite. But, it, you know, the right. question is, again, how do, you, how do you get to them? And so when you think about the, the high risk things that we see on TV, you know, SpaceX or whatever, it feels just so out yeah. of reach for most of us. And, and I really wanted to write a book that was within the grasp of all of us. My whole mission was, be, was behind it was to help everyday people become everyday innovators. So your question on the 70-30 rule, something that I covered in the book, we all talk about the 80-20 rule often, you know, 80% of our results maybe comes from 20% of our efforts. But the 70-30 rule goes something like this. In the next 12 months, whatever your biggest goals may be, if all we do is do what we already know, what, what our experience and training dictates, what, what our plans already suggest, we're likely only going to achieve about 70% of the results that we seek. In other words, to achieve the full potential, that 30% that's remaining, that's the creativity gap. And we can only solve that that remaining period by by course correcting in real time, by being agile, by adapting, by using everyday creativity, by using big little breakthroughs. And and your your question about compounding is an important one because you know, if we if we got to the end of a 12-month period and we got a C minus letter grade, we still passed the class. 
But but what about if, if we continue on that? In other words, if we never kind of get behind our, the principles of innovation, well, yeah. the, the, the 30% gap compounds year over year. And over time, what does that look like? It looks like Pan Am Airlines or Oldsmobile. On the other hand, if we can close the 30% gap and we achieve 100% of our desired outcome, that positive gain compounds as well. And, and before long, you create this unstoppable momentum. And, and that's really what, what the book is all about. It's helping people say, okay, what are the things that we care about the most in life? Is it our business and career? Is it our health and family? Is it our community? And if we want to achieve results in those, and we're looking for that edge, what's, what's the best way to get there? And that's where I believe that big little breakthroughs really comes in is, but when we tap into this incredible superpower that all human beings have of human creativity, we can use that inventive thinking and creative problem solving to, to drive meaningful outcomes. Hmm. Well, in, in your book, you talk about this idea that you're, creativity is expandable relating to what you just said. So you, you coined a new term for it. We know about neuroplasticity now and you talk about inoplasticity. So tell us more about that. Yeah. So for those that, that are unfamiliar with the, the, the first concept, a neuroplasticity, it was originally thought that your brain was fixed at birth and you had a certain amount of brain cells and connections and that was it. But what neuroscience is, is uh, has enlightened us within recently is this concept of neuroplasticity, which is that you can sort of, the, you could teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing, but for your brain. In other words, the brain, the physical structure of the brain can change and expand based on behavior, training, et cetera. And which is really exciting because we're not limited to what we were born with. We can really expand and grow it. So building on that, the concept I shared in the book is called inoplasticity, which basically means that your ability to be creative or innovative is like neuroplasticity, not fixed at birth. In other words, we can expand and grow those capacities, those capabilities. It's, and I always like to say that your creativity is much more like your weight than your height. Like I'm 5'5 five, five on a good day. And so try, try as I may, I'm not going to grow a foot by next month. But my weight, I can control based on my behavior, nutrition, exercise, et cetera. So if you think yeah. about your creativity in that way, it's actually really liberating. So if your third grade teacher said, hey, you weren't very creative and, and maybe you kept that inside you for, for decades, we can bust through that myth and actually rebuild and, and expand our creative capacity, which again is a high leverage activity because it really can help us drive meaningful outcomes. Hmm. Well, um, one of the things I loved about your book was how many stories you told, because it really helped illustrate the points. And I, the thing that pops into my mind at the moment around that concept of inoplasticity is this experiment in a VR virtual re reality environment where you had awe-inspired, there was an awe-inspired group and the, the dull group. I mean, that's just one example, but can you give us a story to kind of illustrate that point and drive it home? Yeah. So in, in the book, I did, I actually spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews with CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning musicians, but also lots of normal everyday people like you and me who, who were doing creative things. But in addition to that, th those interviews, I did, there was a lot of academic research and, and, uh, look, really looking at, you know, can, can people learn to be creative and, and how long and how hard is it? And, and the, the upshot is that most of us can reconnect to those creative roots very quickly. In other words, it's not like learning a new language where you have to study for years and years and you're starting from scratch. Um, because we're hardwired as human beings to be creative, we can boost those uh, skills very quickly. So the study that you're referencing was from a university in Italy, and they took a group of almost identical people in terms of you know, age, demographics, education, et cetera, divided them in two groups like most experiments do. And, and, and one group, they were 
both shown a video and then asked to take a, a, a creativity test, a standardized creativity assessment. But the, the video that they were shown was different. They were put on these AR goggles and one group was shown very boring things like um, sheep grazing in a meadow. The other group was shown these awe-inspiring uh, movies like you know majestic eagles soaring over cliffs and things like this. Anyway, then they both had, that, that was the only difference. They, they showed, one showed a, an awe-inspiring video, the other was a boring video, and they all took the same creativity test. It turns out the awe-inspired group boosted their creativity by like 80%. Yeah, that was amazing. So, so the cool thing here isn't that they learned some, some new trick in, in three minutes. It's that they, that they were able to reconnect with something that was already there. To me, that's very encouraging because, again, it doesn't require millions of dollars and years of study and, and countless sacrifices. We can boost those creative abilities very quickly with just a couple small adjustments. Hmm. Well, I'd love to talk more about that, about how we can boost our creative ability. And uh, But first, I, I wanted to ask about this kind of myth of uh, the overnight success. And a couple of the examples you gave was uh, an entrepreneur named Matt Ishbia, and you also talked about Lady Gaga. Um, you know, I think we had this myth in our society that these people just arise out of nowhere and suddenly they're either they're born with it or they just very precociously have this uh, creative boost that catches people eye, uh, people's eye and it, it leads to great success. So it, tell us more about this, this whole idea of the overnight success and what actually goes behind it. Yeah. So you think about a, a wonderful, let's say an athlete. And, 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 you know, think about a great tennis player and how many hours and hours and hours that person practiced to be able to achieve great things. But, but for some reason in, in our society, when we think of a creative superstar, we think that they were just anointed that way at birth as if, and they wake up one day and have like this lightning bolt of inspiration that just launches perfection yeah. in two seconds. And that's just not how it works. It, right. It's like, like most things in life, it requires work and diligence and practice to, to ultimately uh, enjoy great results. So again, we look at Lady Gaga and we think of, oh my God, she's so talented, but, and, and nothing, I, I love Lady Gaga, I'm not criticizing her, but what she talks about is she said, you know, for her to do a great piece of work, it sort of looks like this. She says she takes about 15 minutes and sort of vomits ideas onto a page and they're <laughs> messy and awful. And then she might spend right. a couple of years of refinement. <clears throat> so we often misconstrue the fact that you know creative people just launch something that's perfect when the truth is it really takes a lot of polishing. It, it, it doesn't necessarily come out perfect. One of my favorite quotes about authors is that what do all great authors have in common? Lousy first drafts. <laughs> and I think it's so true. I mean, a lot of times the, the, the quality of, of a work product is, is not based on the number of revisions. And to me, that's yeah. so liberating because it takes the pressure off of us to generate perfection at, at, at first thought. Yeah. Well, the author Anne Lamott calls them shitty first drafts. So <laughs> she's a, he's a great advocate of that. Well, it relates to one of the, uh, in the book, you talk about the eight obsessions of everyday innovators and you talk, one of them is opening a test kitchen and the, the 10,000 experiment rule, as opposed to the, the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. So talk about the importance of trying things out, experimenting. And so the back half of the book is, is, is broken into eight, the eight core obsessions or the eight core mindsets of everyday innovators. And these are principles that are really easy to get your arms around. They're, they're backed with science and, and stories and technique and such, um, but they're kind of offer a real practical roadmap for those looking to boost creative abilities organizationally or individually uh, to follow. 
And the one that you're referring to called open a test kitchen is borrowing from the concept that food companies, restaurants often do. You know, you don't, you don't experiment with a new dish during the dinner rush on a busy Saturday night. Instead, they have a, a designated area where they experiment with new dishes and try different things. And, and that's what ultimately leads to their creative output. And experimentation is a much more pragmatic way to think about creative uh, invention. And, and so what I'm encouraging people to do is think about not just coming up with some perfect idea, rolling it out like company-wide and hoping for the best. It's, it's, it's that all of us in any point should be running a handful of experiments. And, and what I like to think about is, is the notion that um, the number of, of failed experiments, the optimal number of failed experiments is not zero. You know, we've been taught that failure is the worst thing and, and avoid mistakes yeah. at all costs. But if you have zero failed experiments, that means you're not trying hard enough. You're not, you're not pushing the creative boundaries. And companies mm -hmm. like Microsoft and Google have 30, 40, 50, 60% failed experiments, and yet they're able to achieve incredible things. So back to this 10,000 hour rule, Malcolm Gladwell popularized this concept uh, to, to, be, to achieve mastery in something, you need 10,000 hours of practice. I prefer this, this other notion that was written about in the book, which is the 10,000 experiment rule. In other words, that your success can be directly linked to the number of experiments that you run. And I suggest that instead of just having a to-do list, maybe you have a to-test list, which is you know, sort of these ideas that you might have. Hey, let's test this. Let's test that. So instead of like having a, in your mind, commit to a particular thing and, and, and before you even try it, let's do what they do in a, in, a, in, a, in a scientific laboratory. Let's test things out. And then we can determine which ones merit further exploration and which ones should be discarded and let go. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, it relates to something you talk about. You talk about your uh, obsession with Frogger, the video game, which I share, by the way, I, I worked my way through grad school playing Frogger at the when it used to have video arcades. But you talk about you got to keep on hopping that our successes aren't permanent, but rather a temporary state within the with the in the context of unprecedented change and increasingly difficult circumstances. So um, that keep on hopping is uh, a super important concept in this, in your book, The Globe Breakthroughs. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in 30 years now in business is that too often we overestimate the risk of trying something new, but we underestimate the risk of standing still. Yeah. And in that game, Frogger, for those that don't know the game, you're this little frog and for some reason you can't swim. The goal is to cross a river. The only way to cross the river, though, is to jump on the back of so solid surfaces that are floating in that river. And there's like a log and a lily pad and an alligator. And you have to jump from one to the next to the next in order to make it across the river. But key to the game is that these, these pieces in the, move, in the river are moving. So in other words, if you jump on the back of a, a log and you're all happy, you're like, sweet, I'm, I'm safe. If you stay too long, you fall into the river and die. And I actually think that's a very good metaphor for the world that we're living in you know, unprecedented change. And so if we have a great quarter outcome in our company, yeah, we should slap high five. We should, should celebrate the moment. But to your point, we got to keep on hopping. In other words, we can't just simply cling to the successes of the past and expect the same results. I think this is especially true, by the way, with COVID. You know, as we, as we exit, hopefully, you know, mm. soon, the, the post, now we enter the post-COVID era, I feel like the world has hit a giant reset button. And patterns have been broken. The patterns in which we, yeah. the way we do business, the way we eat, love, shop, sell. And, 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 and therefore, there's such a, an important need to, to let go of the way we used to do things and embrace new approaches. In other words, keep on hopping back to the Frogger thing. And so I think that if anything, 
the COVID situation has accelerated the need for us to use these skills, for us to be creative in our work and even in our personal lives. Yeah, I, it's been interesting watching companies pivot. Um, and my clients have been working with this too, of, of having to make these adjustments. And sometimes a small shift makes a difference. And other times, I think there's a lot of pressure to feel like you've got to do something really dramatic um, in order to shift your situation. Is that something that you've seen that you noticed too during the pandemic? Yeah, I do think that there are, you know, certain, certainly difficult times require, you know, there's an old saying, invention, um, necessity is the mother of invention. But again, mm-hmm. the question is, how do you do that? And so, yeah. uh, you know, to me, I was thinking about this, what, what the, probably the most prolific work of art, of, of painting in history is the Mona Lisa. So let's say you want to create the Mona Lisa in your own work. Maybe, maybe you're in sales, maybe you're in technology, whatever your job is, you want to create the Mona Lisa, your, your own Mona Lisa. So you say, okay, how do you do that? Is the best thing the first time you've ever picked up a paintbrush, you're just going to paint the Mona Lisa? I mean, here's what happened for Da Vinci, who, who painted the Mona Lisa. He didn't just, that wasn't his first work of art. First, Da Vinci had to learn to paint and he had to paint every day and he, he had to paint bad paintings. And, and over time, he developed the skill that, that unlocked his, his, his Mona Lisa. So for us, even if we crave big things, the question gets back to how do you how do you achieve them? And I think it's about it's this notion of small little little bets, you know. And, and you, in in the process, you're building skill. Each one is less risky. And and over time, you know, if you want you want those big ideas, the way way you cultivate the the ability to find them is through the practice of lots of small ideas. Hmm. Well, that brings us to uh, what we've touched on before, which is building creative habits. And I know for you, you have this five-minute creativity workout. And uh, can, can you tell us about how we can cultivate our own creativity better? Sure. Um, so when you think about the you're cultivating your own creativity, again, you could tell I took sort of a scientific approach to it. I mean, I'm a jazz musician, so I like <laughs> pushing the creative boundaries, but I wanted this to be, you know, ha- have scientific rigor behind it. Basically, if you just, if, if you think about how do I adapt my mindsets, how do I adapt my habits and how do I adapt my technique? Those are the three factors that would change behavior really in any walk of life and certainly applies to creativity. So we talked a little bit about the mindsets, which are these eight kind of core obsessions. They're funny, by the way, you know, some one is called start before you're ready. One is called uh, use every drop of toothpaste. So, but, but they are, they are kind of catchy little, little phrases that, that help, help us embrace the mindsets. But now you're getting into, into habits. For me, I do a five minute a day creativity warmup every morning. Again, five minutes. It's not, it doesn't, you know, ruin my whole day. It's quite the opposite. It just sort of sets me up for success. And I do a couple of things. One, one thing I do is they always say in software engineering, if you want to change the outputs, you have to change the inputs. So I start by guzzling the creative inputs of others. I might go to YouTube and watch a live music performance. I might uh, stare at a painting or read a poem out loud and just sort of guzzling in. I spend literally one minute a day guzzling in the creative energies of others. It primes the pump. It gets me ready to rock and roll. Another thing that I like to do is give myself a little like a creativity jumping jacks. So for example, I might uh, grab just a random headline from the, today's news and say, oh, okay, here's a problem that, that the news is reporting about. What are five teeny little ideas that I could think of quickly within one minute that could improve the, the situation they're writing about in the newspaper? And so it's not designed to create work product for me as a business person. It's designed to keep my juices flowing. And so the point is just a little bit of warm up. the same way an athlete would stretch and practice, you know, go to the gym. I think we can do the same for our creativity muscles. 
to help people kind of think about how they can create their own daily creativity routine, how did yours evolve? Did you just start trying things or was it, uh, did it come about in some other way? Tons of trial and error. And, and yeah, <laughs> I, I wish I could say there was some, you know, but, but I, and I, by the way, I think everyone can have their own. You don't necessarily have to embrace mine. Uh, sure. I think the crucial takeaway is that if you have just a small amount of dedicated time, I, I think we can all agree that, you know, cultivating our creativity today more than ever is mission critical. We can't afford not to. I mean, these are the most needed skills in the workforce. These are in a highly competitive and, and fast changing environment. Um, I think it, we owe it to ourselves and those around us to bring our creativity forward. And so if, to, if you want to do that, um, even look, again, something as simple as five minutes of practice a day can yield a gigantic result because these are our innate skills. We're built to be creative by definition as human beings. So we just need to build those muscles a little bit and we can enjoy terrific outcomes as a result. Mm, that's great. Well, we've talked about you know how individuals can cultivate their creativity, but what about entire company cultures? And I mean, shifting culture is never easy, but how, how do you build a creative mindset um, in, a, in a larger sit larger context with teams and an entire company. Yeah, I, I think a good way to think about it is what are the rituals and rewards that you are deploying as a leader to encourage the desired behavior? So if there's a conflict, for example, a lot of times companies say, I want everyone to be creative. And then someone shows up with an idea that isn't <laughs> perfect and they're sent to corporate timeout. Yeah. So what, what's happening is that the actual behavior that you're deploying as a leader is training those people to not be creative. So first step we need to do is remove the fear. I mean, fear is the biggest blocker of creative output. Fear and creativity cannot coexist. So if there's fear around, no creativity will flourish. So as leaders, we want to think about in the same way that a greenhouse, you use a greenhouse to, that creates the optimal conditions for plants to flourish. As a leader, we need to create the opto, optimal conditions, a greenhouse for creativity, basically. And, and a good way to do that, again, is rituals and rewards. A couple examples, though, because that sounds very abstract. One of the gentlemen that I interviewed in the book uh, runs a really cool nonprofit in the UK. And he does a cool ritual because he wants to encourage people to take responsible risks. He wants to encourage people that creativity, you know, inventive thinking, that's part of their job. That, that's part of their responsibility. So every Friday, he does something called F up Fridays. <laughs> he, he says the whole word. I'll just be, you know, PG here today. But F up Fridays are this. He has a big brown bag lunch for all 50 some of his employees. And they literally go around the room. Every single person has to stand up and share what did they F up that week? And, and crucially, what did they learn from it? Hmm. And when they get to, and, and by the way, it's said with pride and joy and people clap, you know, and, and then when they get to somebody that didn't F something up, they're like, well, why not? What are you going to try next week? So to just think for a moment about the message that this little ritual sends deep into the DNA of that company about taking responsible risk and, and leading with their creativity. So again, the, the smallest tweaks to, to uh, rituals and rewards can, can lead to a disproportionately large set of results. Yeah. Well, there's also research, and you talked about this in the book, in terms of uh, leaders who ask for input a lot. Um, tend to be people that people feel more at ease with. They tend to do better as leaders and their, their organizations do better because they're demonstrating in the way you just described that they're willing to receive input. They keep asking for it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, another thing that I, I was really important to me to, to share is that is technique. Tech, I think about it as technology, really. So here's the thing. In 1958, a number of new technologies came on the scene. There was the magnetic tape for storage. There was the Rolodex to keep track of your contacts. There was the first video game, was, which is like this 
tennis game that you couldn't even tell was a tennis game. And this bold new technology for idea extraction came onto the scene called brainstorming. Well, here we are, fast forward, it's 2021. And think about all the upgrades. I mean, you can store the entire mm-hmm. library of Congress on a thumb drive. You don't need magnetic tape. You don't need a right. Rolodex because you have LinkedIn. The video games these days look more realistic than the real thing. Yet we find ourselves still using the same outdated technology of idea for idea extraction called brainstorming, which is mm-hmm. a wildly ineffective and, and, and kind of lame approach. And so in the book, and then I have a sort of a website that I share for readers, uh, I've developed 13 techniques, technologies that are far more effective to bring your best ideas forward. And they're fun and they're playful. Like, like one of them is called the bad idea brainstorm, which is a two-part brainstorm where you first come up with bad ideas, examine the bad ideas and see if there's a little nugget in there that, that could be flipped to become a good idea. There's one called... Um, uh, role storming in which you basically pre- pretend. So each person chooses a character. You could be Steve Jobs, you could be Darth Vader, you could be Serena Williams, and you pretend that you are that person solving the problem. Because when you're pretending that you're somebody else, you remove all fear. In other words, you're no longer responsible for the idea. So you're liberated mm-hmm. to share anything that you want. So anyway, I, I just think it's important for us to, when we really want to look at getting more creative organizationally or individually, we need different mindsets. We need different rituals and, 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 and habits, but we also need different technique or technology. And again, I share quite a bit of that in the book. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, it's enormously helpful just to get some prompts and people will come up with their own, but it's great to have those prompts to kind of stimulate thinking and, and get you going in a thinking about it in a different way. So, yeah. Well, one of the, the mindset, um, the eight mindset or eight obsessions of everyday innovators, as you talked about, it was use every drop of toothpaste. And I was very intrigued by that. I really enjoyed, uh, well, I re- enjoyed the whole book, but reading that chapter was so interesting. Tell us more about how um, making the most of what you have or doing more with less is, is an important part of innovation. Yeah, you know, I speak to um, leaders of companies all around the world, and, and most people agree that they want to be more innovative. But they always, then, then there's this but. You're like, wait for it, wait for it. Here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> and, and it's usually like this fill in the blank. It's like, I'd love to be more creative, but I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough square footage in my factory. I don't have enough equipment or resources, whatever. And so what I always like to playfully respond with is this. If the amount of external resources equaled your level of creativity, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet (laughs) and startups would be the least. And and we know the exact opposite is true. So the principle that you're addressing, I call it use every drop of toothpaste is around being scrappy. It's around being resourceful. It's using ingenuity as opposed to external resources. And it's funny. One of the things I mentioned was a personal experience. Um, I've been playing jazz guitar actually for 40 plus years. I'm just a passionate musician and I studied music in college. So I had this professor, he would force me to remove strings from the guitar. So I would have to take off one, two, sometimes three strings from the guitar. And you would instantly figure, okay, if someone cut your resources in half, your creativity is really going to suffer. But this surprising and counterintuitive thing happened. When the strings were off, I could no longer rely on the patterns that I knew. In other words, I was forced to solve musical problems in a totally fresh way. And as a result, it actually pushed my creativity rather than suppressed it. Mm-hmm. And, and for us, when we find ourselves in a resource-constrained environment, we might look at that as an opportunity to double down on our own internal resources and use different techniques and mindsets and, and habits to extract 
ideas that, that, that truly uh, drive the results that we seek. Well, and your example of the government versus a startup is a perfect example. There's so much innovation that goes on at a startup level because the resources are limited. So, you know, I wonder if even, you know, playing the game and in, in, in um, coming up with ideas is let's say we, we don't have this massive amount of resource, say we just have this limited amount. Um, is that a potential spur for creativity? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It reminded me of a story I, I didn't write about in the book, but um, in the in the 60s, 1960s, uh, uh, the CEO of a large publishing uh, company um, bet a young children's author that he couldn't write a book using only 50 words of the English language. I think the, uh-huh. that was a hundred bucks or something. And uh, the author actually won the bet, but more important, uh, launched an incredible career. That author was Dr. Seuss and the book was Green Eggs and Ham. Yeah. And so you, so you, again, if, if he had unlimited access to the entire dictionary, would it have been as good? And, and actually that helped Dr. Seuss sort of develop his rhythmic style of, of repetition. And, yeah. and again, it, it, there's time after time where you see these people with limited resources doing incredible things. And, and I'm not saying it, it feels good in the moment when you wish you had more resources, but let's use that as a, really an opportunity to let our creativity go forward. Yeah, that's a great example. Well, I wonder if entrepreneurs, um, you know, we sort of pride ourselves on being creative and innovative. And, um, you know, I wonder if, are there people that just have this ability or are they, is it something that, that people with an entrepreneurial mindset nurture in ways that we may not even be aware of? What's your experience? So I, I come at this not only as a researcher and and you know someone who studied human creativity for twenty plus years, but you know I, I've started, built, and sold five companies of my own. I've helped over a hundred startups get off the ground. I've created mm-hmm. over ten thousand jobs. So I, I have at least a little bit of practical, real world experience in this in this yeah. context. Awesome. And um, I would say that it's not what you think. You know, so often we think, oh, that person is born as a born entrepreneur, or and it's it's not. I mean, all of us have the capacity to do the exact same approach that an entrepreneur takes, which is, and in fact, there's a lot of myth, myths around entrepreneurs that you think of them as like these wildly, you know, guns blazing, risky people. But practical <laughs> entrepreneurs tend to figure out ways to de-risk the process. Yeah, and and True. and that's what this book is all about too, is sort of de-risking the creative process. But the truth is this: all of us can be creative in our own ways. You don't have to start a company to be an entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur and have an entrepreneurial mindset, even if you work at a large organization or a nonprofit or even in a governmental role. And so I think we can all use that, bring, bring kind of that inner entrepreneur to the surface, that inner creator, the maker and doer, the dreamer, you know, and, and do cool stuff with it. And so please don't worry that you have to be wearing a lab coat or a hoodie to be creative or that you have to be born a special <laughs> way. All of us can do this types of uh, approaches if we take a little bit of effort and a little bit of time. Yeah. Well, another one of the, uh, the, the mindset aspects of, of innovation you talk about is um, starting before you're ready. So can you, can you share with us a story of, of somebody who really exemplified that and, and tell us a little more about it? Sure. So the principle, start before you're ready, it, it kind of self-explanatory, but the idea is that, you know, many of us just wait too long. We have an idea, we're like, okay, but I better not start. So we wait for permission or we wait till we have a directive. Someone tells us to do it or, or until we have a game plan, game plan that's bulletproof. And, and, and the problem is that we can lose opportunity. It's actually not the, the best thing to do to wait till you think it's perfect to start. You're better off starting quickly and, and, and just doing a lot of cycles of adapting along the way. 
you know, going forward, even though you don't have all the uh, perfect plans in front of you, willingness to course correct and pivot and be agile, uh, running lots of experiments, in fact, to get to the outcome that you seek. Uh, and so we, I did cover a bunch of people in the book. Um, one that I cover is a guy named Greg Schwartz, uh, who is, uh, is an entrepreneur that I actually backed in early in his career. Um, he then got started on a company called StockX and StockX started by selling tennis shoes, collectible tennis shoes. Now they build as the stock market of things. And he had this idea of, could we, could we compete with eBay selling tennis shoes? So that's a pretty big idea, but he had no idea what he was doing. Like he, he didn't have a game plan he didn't raise capital. He just started and he figured it out along the way. And there were a lot of these moments he's, he tells, which I cover in the book where he wasn't quite sure, but he, he got after it and, and was willing to change and adapt as he, as he, as he proceeded today, the company's worth $3.8 billion. It's Detroit's mm. uh, most break, biggest breakaway tech company. I'm very proud to, to be friends with and have backed Greg along the way, but um, here's a guy that didn't have all the answers, but he started before he was ready. And there's time and time again, when, when we look at these success stories, it wasn't that they had it all right. And then they got started. It was the opposite. They got started and, and directionally had an idea, but they figured it out as they proceeded. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. Well, Greg, um, <laughs> Josh, I'm, uh, see, I've got Greg on my mind now. Um, Josh, I always end up these, end these interviews with uh, three questions about impact in a rapid round. Are you game to do that? Absolutely. Great. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Well, gosh, there's a hard question. I guess one, one thing, I, I do tend to pursue impact over other things. I guess what I'd say that, that most many people pursue money and they seldom find it. I find that the mm -hmm. people who make the most money tend to pursue impact and then the money comes as a byproduct. In other yeah. words, they pursue greatness and making a difference in the world and doing things that, that are important that they'll be remembered by and elevating others. And, and they end up having all this wonderful economic success again as a byproduct. So I think that the, the best way to achieve economic outcomes isn't necessarily to chase economic outcomes, but when you find yourself chasing impact, the, the economic outcomes that you seek tend to come as, again, as a byproduct. Yeah, absolutely true. And there's a lot of research now to support that. I think for a long time, it was this philosophical, wouldn't it be nice? And, and, uh, but it, there's actually a really tight correlation there. So yeah, that's great that you've had that experience too. Yeah, go I was going to add to like, in, so in the book, yeah. you know, today we've covered a couple of business examples, but you, you might remember, you know, there, I covered a lot of nonprofits in the book. And so to me, mm -hmm. I just think that creativity can be harnessed. So, so there's 7 billion people on the planet, I believe, walking around with dormant creative capacity, me included. And my belief and one of the key drivers for me writing the book wasn't so much to enjoy commercial success, but it was like, okay, what if we could help all those people bring more creativity to the surface, even 5%. And think about back to impact. I, I was thinking about what would the impact look like if we could become 5% more creative in our public schools or yeah. in healthcare wow. or in our environment or in our communities driving you know, racial equality and justice. And so mm. I, while we shared several business ideas today, the book is really all about building creative capacity in, in people in mass and then directing that to the things that we care about the most. In some cases, it could be a business outcome, but in a lot of cases, it's driving a nonprofit or it's driving you know, meaningful impact in our communities. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, thank you for adding that. It's great. What's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Um, I'm, a, I'm a learner and an experimenter. And so I feel like I, I'm always learning and I'm always trying stuff. And 
I, the nice thing is like when you try something in a control, if you try something where you bet your entire family's future on it and, and you fail, that stinks. Like, please don't do that. What I like to do <laughs> is to do lots and lots and lots of controlled experiments. And I'm just pretty thoughtful about it. So then, and knowing full well, many of them, most of them probably will fail. But then when you quote unquote fail, to me, it's you either, you either win and the, the, the experiment succeeds or you learn. In other words, I don't, you know, it, it's not so much a failure because I didn't overextend myself and I'm, I'm prepared to sustain the loss. And so I guess what I do is I learn and experiment, learn and experiment in a constant cycle. And that has become liberating and, and actually a very productive way to drive results, both in business and, and in, in, in nonprofits that I care about and, and in life in general. Hmm. Uh, that's great. How do you keep up that positive attitude of being an experimenter? Is, is the little experiment approach easier to to handle when things don't work out oh yeah i mean think about yeah. this if you, if you had this one big idea you're like this is it i'm yeah. I, i'm going to be remembered for this and and you do right. you put everything you own behind this every you, you told all your friends and it didn't work out think how horrible you'd feel i mean i, I don't yeah. recommend thinking of, of creativity as these binary outcomes bet the whole bet everything you have on it Instead, I, I like this idea of, of being just a constant tinkerer and experimenter. I mean, think about how a drug is discovered in the laboratory. Thank God we have now a COVID vaccine. But that wasn't like some dude in a corner office just said one day, Eureka, print a billion copies of this. Go put in people's arms. Like they would arrest right. him if he did that. Instead, yeah. what happens is in a controlled environment, in a laboratory, they test a whole bunch of things and most of them don't work out. And the ones that show a little promise, they tweak and adapt and tweak and adapt. And over time, that's the most productive way to enjoy a giant breakthrough. And, and that's how I look at it. So the, 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 way, the reason innovation and creativity feels risky is because we think about it as these giant overwhelming bets. But when you think about it as you know, small teeny ones, fixed time, fixed money bets. If I said, hey, listen, I want you to risk 15 minutes and $5. And in that case, if it didn't work out, I mean, okay, no big deal. You learn something from it. And it, when we think about those little experiments, it's just so much easier and, 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 and less scary, less overwhelming, more within the grasp of each of us. Mm, yeah, so good. Well, the last rapid round question is, what's one insight or a piece of advice you'd share with somebody who's thinking, I want to have more impact. I want to um, make those kinds of changes in the world. What would you say to them? Well, you could tell my theme here about big little breakthroughs. And again, <laughs> the, the problem I think we have is when we, we look at, at, at doing something and say, okay, I want to have impact, which is awesome, by the way. We all should have impact. But then we quickly say, what could little old me do? And, and the only way I could have impact is if I quit my job and devoted my whole life. And, and then the stakes become too high and we do nothing. So back to the concept of big little breakthroughs, what about this? What if you said, okay, over the next 30 days, I'm going to use all my creativity I can. I'm going to see if I can use all my creative ideas to save 15 minutes a week. That's it, 15 minutes a week. And I bet we could find it, even one minute at a time. Like maybe you'll, you'll take a different route to work that would save you a couple minutes. Or maybe you could move the printer closer to your desk so you'd save you know, 30 seconds each time you print something out. So if you could find a creative way to save 15 minutes a week, now you've got this extra 15 minutes. Say, so what do I do with it? Well, instead of just absorbing it into the rest of the whirlwind of your life, say, okay, now I'm going to carve this 15 minutes out for impact. And now I've got 15 minutes a week. I can invest in, in, in helping a nonprofit and in, in, in trying to create visibility in giving back in some way or another. Maybe you create 15 minutes and you can now drive 15 minutes of extra money and use that money to donate to your favorite charity. My only point is instead of thinking like, who am I? Because I, I, I'm not a billionaire like Bill Gates and I can't create a, a multi-billion dollar foundation. My, my impact won't matter. Forget that. All of us can be impactful. 
do it in small ways and just take a little teeny, teeny, teeny bit of, of, of your resources, time, money, creativity, energy, and, and, and direct it toward impact. And, and what, just like creativity, what happens is then it will start to multiply. So your 15 minutes might become 22 minutes. And before long, you're making an even bigger impact than you even thought. So just like any big opportunity or challenge in front of us, start small, take little teeny, teeny, teeny micro steps. And before long, you'll be in the groove and you'll start to really enjoy and as will the world, the benefits that you've been able to put forth. Mm, that's great. It's a wonderful vision. Um, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your ideas and, and uh, many examples of how big breakthroughs can be had through small ones and uh, bringing them all together. Um, and it really illustrates beautifully that point about impact and how uh, things ripple out and, and tend to accumulate. So uh, thanks so much for sharing all the stories and the amazing research that you've done and, and uh, the, it's been wonderful to talk through some of the things in your book. So um, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. And, and for your, not only our conversation today, but for your, your continued impact that you're making in the world. I would just encourage uh, listeners, if, if, you, if this strikes a nerve, if you're curious about you know, pushing your creative boundaries even a little bit, um, check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. You certainly can buy the book if you feel like it, but even if you don't want to buy the book, there's a whole toolkit of free stuff there. There's a, an assessment so you can kind of gauge how you're doing now and where you might want to improve. There's downloadable worksheets. There's a fast start guide. There's a bunch of, of technologies and tools and mindsets for you to help you boost your creative abilities. So check it out, biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And, and thanks again. I really appreciate the opportunity, Ursula, to be with you. And, and I wish you continued success. That's great. Thank you, Josh. I, uh, you, you preempted my question in the perfect way. So that was great. I, I wanted to uh, be able, have you be able to share where people can uh, get the book, which uh, tell us also that where the book can be can be purchased. Big Little Breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, it's on the site, biglittlebreakthroughs.com, but really anywhere anywhere books are sold. So you know, Amazon, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I did an audio book. If anyone's curious, I read it myself, but I actually played a little jazz guitar in between each chapter. So I took a big oh, little cool. breakthrough approach to the audiobook. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, that's great. Love that. Well, thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Josh. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and help us spread the word rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment one-on-one -on -one with me, 60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 